every successful person got there by going through tough times. Success is a hard-ass teacher who likes to knock you around along that journey. You know, it takes real guts to not give up and keep going. We'll hear stories about failures and how these leaders flip the script to create success. I'm John Schultz. Join me and let's discover how success is never really overnight. Welcome to the John Schultz podcast. We have a, a guest today that I am so excited to talk to. I know some of his family members who we love uh, and grew up with in my area. Uh, it's a company that is a fascinating company, fascinating career, and uh, his name is Ken Roll. Uh, he's founder and owner of Roll LLC, but it is known as the House of Roll, which I love. Uh, I love when you put a fun name to, to a company and it happens to be your name. Uh, this business has been you know, around for a while, but Ken started in the kitchen and bath industry for over 50 years. He founded Roll LLC in 1983 at 50. So everyone out there that doesn't think they could be an entrepreneur their whole life, they're wrong. They are completely wrong. It's Decker Plumbing Company. It's known for the first pull-out kitchen faucet offered in North America. Ken eventually sold his company to a Fortune brand, uh, you know, Fortune 500 company. Ken has also co-authored the Corporate Tenor Plan using his business savvy from when he was a corporate person to being an entrepreneur and a roadmap we're going to talk about. And what I love this one. In 2008, he was inducted into the National Kitchen and Bath Association Hall of Fame. Thank God we have people that focus on that. I know we use our bathrooms a lot, and we need someone focused on it. So welcome, Ken, and thank you so much for being here. John, thank you for the opportunity to be with you and your audience and look forward to the next hour. Terrific. So, uh, you know, it's the myth of overnight success and you've had a bunch of it and it's a long career and still going. But, you know, I'd love to start with the early years. Like, you know, how did your upbringing or family background contribute to this entrepreneurial spirit? You know, what were your interests as a kid and, and how did you start out early? Okay. Uh, we're uh, East Coast transplants or Midwesterners uh, transplanted to California, but I would, grew up in the uh, Chicago area, south side of Chicago, and uh, very much an Irish community, uh, Catholic upbringing, uh, parents uh, were uh, upper middle class, my dad was in the steel industry, mother a housewife after a uh, period of time working for AT&T. Uh, I'm born in 1935, so right in the middle of the Depression. Uh, early memories, uh, probably uh, first grade, uh, sitting at a gas station with my dad while mother was at church. And uh, President Roosevelt came on to announce that we were starting the conflict with the Japanese, that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And uh, that, of course, changed everybody's life. We, we had been experiencing the uh, effects of the Depression up until 41. Now we started to shift our focus to a international conflict between the Germans and the Japanese and the U.S. And everybody knows 
the story of World War II. Uh, we spent, uh, as a family, the early years, again, in the Chicago area, but in uh, about 19, oh, I guess it was probably 1948, 49, my dad was transferred from Chicago to Pittsburgh. So in sixth grade, I moved from Chicago to uh, the uh, south side of Pittsburgh, an area called Mount Lebanon, PA. And that was probably when I really began to uh, develop some of my let's say, personality traits that led to a more entrepreneurial career. Uh, being a six foot, well, I, I suppose in, in uh, sixth grade, I was about five foot eight and 130 or 40 pounds, but I was tall enough and big enough that the pastor of the church came into my class the second day of being in school and grabbed me by the collar and said, you're going to be on my football team. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Football was a big deal, obviously, in Western Pennsylvania and, and, and particularly on the East Coast in those days. So uh, I began a, a career in athletics uh, in grade school and, and continued uh, through high school uh, with uh, interest in sports in general. But I think the uh, competitive spirit of sports played a big part in uh, honing the skills that uh, were important in my business career. Again, I can't put enough emphasis on the importance of, uh, of my parents and the influence that they had on me. My mother, uh, at an early age, uh, introduced me to the little train that could. I think I can, I think I can. And so that mantra was a very important part of my early upbringing. Uh, very positive thinking, uh, very goal-oriented, uh, very task-oriented and sports, again, honing those skills. Uh, probably as I completed the, the grade school experience, I moved into middle school and high school in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, started to probably develop some entrepreneurial interests uh, with uh, a, a work ethic, again, encouraged by my mother early uh, 14 years of age working a, in a pharmacy, a beer distributor. And when I was 16 years old, I went into uh, the first uh, experience I had in the steel industry working for a, a company in Bridge, or Bridge, Bridgeview, Pennsylvania, Flannery Manufacturing. I can remember I was hired at age 16 to clean washrooms. Uh, and so my summer uh, of my 18th year, I was at uh, Homestead Works as a metallurgical engineer working on the open hearth. Uh, the following summer, Duquesne Works. And by this time, I'm, I'm finishing my high school career and uh, momentarily thought about immediately going into business because I had, again, that entrepreneurial streak. Uh, happily, I had a vice principal at Mount Lebanon High School who collaborated with my mother to impress upon me the importance of a degree. And uh, because of my football connections, I was uh, invited to uh, a, a school in, in Ohio, uh, a liberal arts college by the name of Denison University. And uh, I was admitted to uh, Denison 
in uh, the uh, fall of 1953, and I spent the next four years at Denison. And it was during those years at Denison that I, I started my first business, which I called Collegiate Sportswear. And that was a, uh, a business that uh, provided fraternity and sorority sweatshirts to uh, my classmates. And I realized after uh, all of several months of success that there was a certain limit to how much commission I could make selling to sweatshirts on that campus. And within 50 miles of the Denison campus, there were five other small universities. So I immediately set up some uh, representatives on the other campuses, developed the business over the next uh, couple of years. So by the time I graduated from Denison University, I had a, uh, a pretty thriving business. I think my income in 1957 was $8,000, which I, I'm told it could it's equivalent to about a $70,000 income. In yeah, no, it's a, I have a question for you, because it's very interesting. Uh, you know, we, you, you went through the Great Depression, that war, the wars. Our generation really has not, not been through a lot till the pandemic. Like, I have a whole nother perspective of what taking for granted things mean. I, like, no, like, you know, it's just we never really had a crazy or crazy events. Uh, do you feel that was a spark that you didn't realize that you always felt like I have to do it on my own? Like you never know what's going to be taken away. Do you feel that was a big impact being that, you know, I don't know if you were too young to feel that. Do you feel that has anything to do with what you became today? whether it was the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, I mean, each step along the way, my, my first realization of how precious life was, was uh, 19, gosh, I think it was like 1950, John. Yeah. I was working at a summer camp in West Virginia, and two of the counselors that, that were directing us uh, were in the Marine Reserve. And they were called up in July of 1950. And by the summer of 51, maybe 52, uh, they had both lost their lives in Korea. Oh, God. That's a pretty sobering experience to, to know that a couple of fellows that you're just a couple of years older than you at that point in your life uh, had been snuffed out very quickly because of a conflict. So that was that was pretty poignant. Uh, I don't think by the time I got into the 60s, uh, the Vietnam War had much of an impact on me personally, because by that time I'm I'm developing my own family. I'm too old for the yeah. uh, and, and I was blessed, as were my sons, that it seemed like we were just born at a time when uh, we we avoided these conflicts. Uh, Ten years. I mean, it's, it's interesting today on the news. I'm listening to a fellow that's 98 years old celebrating uh, his uh, memory of the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, and there's a 10-year difference between that gentleman and myself. And and what a decade of life can mean in in terms of the way life can impact on you. Oh, a hundred percent. So so. 
you know, it's what we take for granted. You know, sometimes you, you just got to be grateful and understand anything could be. And listen, that's what makes the entrepreneurial life fun because you have to be very happy living with uncertainty all the time, right? You, you never really know. And you just got to have belief that what you're doing means something. I love this uh, sweatshirt business. I actually didn't make it as big as yours, but I did sweatshirts as well in college. I don't know if that – you're like the third person I've heard that from uh, recently. I don't know why that's coming up in my life all of a sudden, but uh, I guess uh, I'm around a lot of entrepreneurs, but that's funny. And then, all right, so you, you, you're in college. Yeah, uh, I think this is the next – this next decade is pretty important. Uh, I was hired by U.S. Steel in 1957 and admitted to an executive training program, which was a very prestigious opportunity for any young guy. There were six of us in that class. And uh, it, it's, it was the beginning of my corporate career, which lasted for 25 years. But that first 10 years from 1957 to 67, I was groomed by U.S. Steel, and my mentors during that period were all World War II officers. So we had a very militaristic kind of lifestyle, a very transactional experience for any young person. And, and joining a corporation in those days, you realized that it was all about the corporation and not the individual, which didn't really set with well with me because, again, I think my my competitive spirit wanted to, to somehow or another make a difference in my success along the way. But anyway, with U.S. Steel, 13 months of formal training, very important. And, and the point I'd like to make to the audience right now is that I'm a big believer in any young person coming out of college spending a period of time being mentored by a, a corporation that has a, a development program of some sort where, where you can, by taking various steps and, and chairs along the way, develop a lot of skills on somebody else's dollar. And, I, and my success is totally based on what the lessons I learned in corporate America. So first 10 years, formal training and exposure to customer service. Can't emphasize enough the importance of every young person having some experience in a customer service department where you early on start to, to experience making promises and keeping promises. And in the case of US Steel, I was handling multi-million dollar accounts at the age of 22, 23. And I'm in my book, I, I talk about how the uh, head of the customer service department on my second day, uh, I confronted him and I said, this is an awful lot of responsibility taking care of Ford Motor and Borg Warner and major accounts. You really think a rookie like myself should be doing it? And he looked at me and he said, roll, you'll either sink or swim. <laughs> I get back to the desk and, and obviously I chose to swim there you go so anyway leaving uh, that customer service position I moved into a sales position in St. Louis spent four years 
in St. Louis, started a family, uh, had the experience of multiple customers, multiple products, working for a company like U.S. Steel. Uh, you were exposed to a, a whole host of different companies, everything from pet milk to distribution uh, companies to structural fabricators. Uh, got involved with the building of the uh, St. Louis Arc, Arch, which is uh, the, the gateway to the West. Yeah. After four years of, of sales, I was uh, tapped for a startup operation in Birmingham, Alabama. Here I am again, what maybe uh, 27, 28 years old. I'm being sent to, to the South to a wholly different culture. Uh, it's a startup, a hole in the ground. I've got $50 million, three years to build a factory. I mean, can you imagine that kind of responsibility for, for anybody uh, other than somebody in corporate America? And uh, anyway, two years later, we, we had that factory up and going. And I was- Good question about that. What you said, I, I think one of your points is so important. We don't all have to be in sales. But I, I think if you don't spend any time in it and you're involved in any product, you really can't understand how a customer thinks. I mean, obviously, we're all customers. Uh, if you can't present yourself properly or learn what that means and how to engage with people. And, you know, the, the problem I'm having with today is since COVID, you know, people aren't engaging the same way. Uh, I know we have all these tools in the in the you know, e-commerce and the internet and everything that we're doing to, to show our products. But uh, how important do you think that sales background helped you throughout your career? John, I, I, I don't think you can emphasize enough the importance of having some sales experience if you're going to end up in a leadership position. I mean, I, I'd say, generally speaking, most leaders are extroverts. Uh, most leaders at best are ambiverts, a little bit of left and right brain development. But there's nothing that, that I think takes the place of being in the trenches, being challenged to come up with solutions for a customer, uh, learning to listen. I mean, one of the axioms, one of the, the fundamentals of, of any sales experience is listen to the customer, find out what they want, and then just give it to them, get the order and get out of town. No, it's true. I mean, like from Bezos, customers set, I mean, Mark Cuban, you, you look at any one of these people that are in product businesses and they're the first to tell you that, you know, you're building it for your customer, not for yourself, not for your own ego. So, so all right, so you built this factory at a very young age. Uh, yeah. then, then what happened from there? Well, then I'm transferred to Pittsburgh, and uh, I moved into a, a pretty a pretty high-level position as a product manager uh, with uh, national responsibilities. And uh, so at that, at that point, I'm, I'm not just regionally focused, I'm nationally focused. I'm, I'm on the West Coast, I'm in the South, all over the country, promoting a a product line of sheet steel uh, for pipes and uh, 
and things <clears throat> related to uh, uh, steel sheet production. And uh, this is 1967. Jack Kennedy <clears throat> becomes president of the United States. All of a sudden, there's a lot of focus on the environment. Uh, the steel industry is identified as a significant pollutant of the air, particularly in places like Pittsburgh and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And uh, the uh, government decides to put restrictions on the steel industry that basically increases the cost of environmental protection <clears throat> into the billions of dollars and, and resources that the industry would have used for research and development and marketing are now diverted to the environment and uh, cleansers for these steel mills that are major pollutants. And, in a, and all of a sudden we're displacing hundreds of thousands of workers. And it's pretty clear that the steel industry isn't going to be a, a real healthy career path for somebody like myself. And fortunately I had made an acquaintance with a company in Chicago uh, in my sheet steel experience in, in down south that we're looking for a, a director of marketing for a new product development in an area that where I was skilled. And I was presented with an opportunity to leave US Steel and join a company in Chicago called DeSoto Chemical. So that's the first corporate move that I make. And it takes me from a US focused product line to a, a product line and a company that has uh, both national and international interests. I spent two years with that startup. It's successful. The company decides to integrate my product line into their commodity lines. The chairman of the board comes to me and says, out of one job, but we've got another one for you in another division. And so I was introduced to my first residential product experience, which was wallpaper. So I was assigned to a company that had just lost some money. They were floundering. The, uh, the board decided that they needed some fresh ideas and, and thoughts for this business. And I was quarterbacked in the position of, of turning that company around. And so United Wall Covering became a, an experience for me that uh, I think played a big role in my future in the kitchen and bath industry and residential products. Uh, so, so let me ask you a question, right? Because you're an entrepreneur in theory your whole life. Like what made you keep going from job to job? I, I mean, I know it, it's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not condemned, but like, what what I'm trying to understand is how you go so long being an entrepreneur to, to then when you in 83 starting role. Like well, all right. I, I think again, relationships, mentoring plays a big role in all of our careers. So I had in my corporate years mentors who who saw something in me that was was worth developing and I was smart enough to listen and learn. I had relationships that I developed that led from one career opportunity to another. And there's an element of luck, uh, timing, uh, 
I mean, literally being out of a job with United wall covering because we had been too successful and the division sold off and having a supplier in my office telling me that a classmate of his is looking for a VP of sales and marketing. Uh, I mean, how, how do you, how do you predict something like that? Well, you don't, but your will, but you never can bring, I, that, I think happenstance plays a role in all of our lives if we allow it, but you also took the initiative to go check it out. Because exactly. you just seem like you're a person. You're never afraid to try and learn. Like you're not afraid of the new, which is obviously how you became this entrepreneur later in life. Uh, and you weren't afraid to change. And, you, you know, you were also not afraid of the unknown. I mean, it, seems, it didn't matter what state, what area, what thing it was. I mean, these are all sort of similar but different. It's not like they're the same type of product. So, And all of us, I'm sure, uh, and... And it's interesting, in my book, I use the hot air balloon as a metaphor for being entrepreneurial. And, and we can maybe get to that. We'll touch on we that. Are. I, I mean, I, I'm picturing it because we're all just floating around and hopefully we're in the right direction if we like move the rudders a little bit, but we're not in control. So I don't know if that's what it means, but that's what, when I see that on your book, I feel that. All right, so yeah. Well, the point though, Johnny, is that yes, you have to have a tolerance for risk. Totally. There, there's something about our personalities that welcome challenges and, and see that if we're going to make anything happen, it's up to us. And well, so one of my, one of my th I feel better being an underdog. I, like my favorite movies are Rudy, Rocky. I actually had Rudy on, the real Rudy, on one of my podcasts. It was amazing. I, I feel more settled in that space. It's pretty interesting. That's that's me. I think a lot of entrepreneurs do. That's why at a certain point, you know, a new CEO comes in and they're on to the next, you know, feeling unsettled thing, right? So, uh, so you're at the end of this corporate gig, right? And then how did role form? Like, what was that one moment that you decided I'm doing this? And it's me doing this with your team, your, your, your family. Okay. The, the fourth leg of the corporate experience is a company called LK Manufacturing out of Chicago. Yeah. Well, I leave St. Charles as, through, again, relationships. And I'm brought into LK Manufacturing as a senior vice president of sales and marketing replacing an iconic figure who had been with their company since its founding in 1935. With that position, I'm exposed again and, and even a, a greater to a greater extent to the international world. And I'm with LK in 1979. By 1981, uh, I have learned quite a bit about the plumbing industry. I've learned about distribution. And now there's an invitation to go to Frankfurt, Germany to participate in an international trade fair. So I decide that we're going to take LK US made products to Western Europe and use this uh, trade show as a launching pad for exposing LK products, not only to the Western European market, to the Middle Eastern market. 
So I set up a, a trade show booth in this uh, German environment. <clears throat> Nobody on my team speaks any German other than the little German that I might have learned <laughs> in my home with my grandparents from Aurora, Illinois. But anyway, it's, it's this risk thing, you know, hey, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So let's go to Frankfurt, Germany and expose LK products to the international market. And so we set up a trade show booth. I think this first night I'm there, I, I meet a gal at the bar who speaks fluent German and uh, English. And I hire her to come into our trade show booth and to be uh, kind of a draw and, and to cover the language issue. And so we have a very successful couple of days. And I think it was the second or third day I'm in the booth and this gentleman walks in and introduces himself as the son of the founder and chairman of a company called KWC, which is a faucet manufacturer from, from the uh, country of Switzerland, RO Switzerland. And uh, he says, I've got a product that I think your company might be interested in, and it's called a pullout kitchen faucet. Well, in 1981, nobody in America had ever heard of or seen a pullout kitchen faucet. Hard to believe that today it's ubiquitous. Just about everybody now has one in their home, but this is 40 years later. Uh, but in 1981, it's a very unique product. It's a, it's a luxury product. It's the, the, the Bentley of, of faucets. <clears throat> but I, I'm intrigued enough when this gentleman suggests a partnership that I say, well, come on back to Chicago and I'll introduce you to the owner of my company and maybe we can put together a partnership. So in the spring of 81, uh, KWC comes to Chicago. We meet with uh, the owner of my company. He picks up this faucet, looks at me and says, Ken, this will make a great anchor on my boat. And nobody will pay $250 for a kitchen faucet. So I did my mea copas with the gentleman from Switzerland and invited him out to lunch. And at lunch, I said, you know, I think you and I should stay in touch because there is some there there with that product. And although it's been rejected by LK, uh, maybe there's something that we can develop. Well, thus began the beginning of my entrepreneurial career because over the next few months I envisioned how I could use this pull-out kitchen faucet as my link to an entrepreneurial venture. And I was at a point in my corporate career, now 48 years of age, where I had done all that I was going to do. And if I was going to really make anything happen from that point on, it was going to be on my own, my own as we used to say, nickels, I guess now it would be so you you and Croc from McDonald's. I mean, like like I love it. Like all, it's it's such a cool story because it's it, it 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 is similar. You know, different but similar. Different, and we're both actually from the south. We're 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 both starting from a base in Chicago. But anyway, uh, I stayed in touch with KWC through the uh, latter part of '81, and by the literally by the end of '81. Uh, I'm pretty clear that my career 
that LK is, is, is just not shaping up. And I negotiate with the owner of the company an exit from LK because I'm on contract with them. And so they have an obligation to me. I have an obligation to them. And I said, look, why don't I become your VP of sales for the West Coast? Because I'd like to go to California and plant my flag there for whatever I'm going to do with the rest of my career. And I had looked at both the East Coast and the West Coast as a launching pad for this business that I was contemplating. And in those days, California was was the mecca for startups. Yeah. And it was just... It still really is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a major ecosystem. It is. No doubt about it. So... Anyway, I, I moved to uh, Southern California in late 81, early 82. And uh, in uh, 82, I start to develop the KWC relationship with uh, dealers on uh, in the California market. And uh, I'm enjoying some success, uh, much so much so that I engaged my son, Lou, who at this point has graduated from a, a school in Illinois, part of the University of Illinois system. And uh, he had worked for me uh, in the summer of his or his junior year uh, at a distributor in Frankfurt, Germany. So he had picked up uh, the German language, the German culture, uh, I'm now affiliated with a, a German-speaking Swiss company, and uh, I need a Trojan horse to represent me at the factory. And so Lou becomes my Trojan horse and agrees to move to Switzerland and work in the export department of, of this company that I'm now partnering with. And uh, in 82, that relationship develops uh, by the end of 82, I've opened a, an office in Southern California. Uh, I have met my uh, now wife at a trade show. Uh, she has come on as an employee along with her daughter. Lou comes back from, uh, from uh, well, actually, before Lou comes back from Switzerland, there's a very pivotal moment where uh, my relationship in early 83, or is it 82? Early 82, uh, with KWC as being tenuous because the 80, in 82, the owner of, of KWC is replaced by the board of directors with a professional CEO. And the CEO decides that uh, maybe the... Uh, one of the problems with the, the company's earnings has to do with their international distribution and it might need revamping. And I'm about five months into my relationship with them. And I'm, I get a call from Lou saying that maybe my relationship is in jeopardy. So here again is that moment where you decide, what are you going to do to preserve this relationship? And my decision, decision is I'm going to get on a plane and fly to Zurich, Switzerland, and I'm going to go into a board of directors meeting Monday morning 
and I'm going to tell my story and why they want to continue their engagement with me instead of coming up with an alternative. The only prop that I take into that board meeting, because half the audience speaks no English and the other have absolutely no understanding of the U.S. market, is a map of the United States. And here again is the importance of knowing your market and having credentials in all parts of the market. I think any startup that wants to have a national footprint has to have an owner, a leader that really understands the cultures of our country. What better way to present the cultures of our country, to put the map of the country in front of an audience and then walk across the country talking about the time zone changes, talking about the cultural changes from south to north, east to west, talking about the importance of knowing the customers, the marketplace, all the vagaries and challenges of, of dealing in a, in a multifaceted cultural country with different time zones. And literally, after about a 40-minute presentation, I look at this group and I say, I'm going to go out and sit in the vestibule for 30 minutes. I got a plane back to Chicago. I want an answer one way or the other before I leave. Happily, they walked out 15 minutes later with a contract. We signed that contract and thus began a uh, 15, 16 year career with KWC as their US partner. Now, <clears throat> that's the first hurdle that any entrepreneur is going to run into in that first 12, 18, 24 months of, of a startup and why so many businesses fail. I mean, I'm sure you know, John, the statistics on, on startup failures. And there's two things that I point out in the book. One, the, the percentage of failures of companies that are started by people in their 30s versus people in their late 40s or 50s. And clearly, the chances of success are much greater if you've got 10 or 15 years of experience on somebody else's dollar before you start your own business than just coming up with a product idea and thinking that you're going to, because of the dynamics of, of this innovative idea of yours, you're going to succeed. And, and in the book, I do point out that any business is like a, a stool that's got three legs. You've got to understand sales, you've got to understand marketing, and you've got to understand finance. And so that... A hundred percent. Or you got to be smart enough to bring in people as a partner and get along that will, you know, help you with your blind spots. But like, because if you are young, you better have the right set of people, those legs set up. You know, fortunately for you, you you experience them all. There's nothing better than experience, but, uh, you know, not everybody wants to wait as long as you. And they, you know. And then the, the key is to read the book and realize the importance of knowing, to your point, your strengths and your weaknesses. Yes. And and the smartest thing you could do as a leader is to fortify your business with people that make up for your weaknesses because we don't all have an understanding of sales, marketing, and finance. My, my weakness was finance. I didn't have an in-depth understanding of anything other than profits and revenue. 
And, and I certainly had a great appreciation for cash flow. And so I understood the fundamentals of finance, but, but all the details, the, all of the, the back office stuff that is so important to your success was going to be delegated to somebody who had skills in that area that made up for my deficiencies. And that's, and that's I think, the key to anybody's success is, again, to our point. Know your strengths, know your weaknesses. Well, well, look at them all, you know, Jobs, Wozniak. I mean, everyone had someone that was levering them up, uh, no, no matter what company, and multiple people, candidly, depending on the company. There's always the front person, but that's that's just one uh, person that you see, and it, there's a lot behind that. All right, so you have role. I love that you created something that I, I, I don't know how you could have a faucet without pulling it out and like doing like, like, like it's crazy. I don't, I don't, I can't believe that wasn't like a thing even long before that, but you saw it, you know, and my boss saw it as an anchor on his boat. So well, that's what I love it. But like, I always say to people, like, I'll be looking down the street, you'll be looking down the street and we will see two entirely different things. It's what you want to have your eyes and mind opened up to is what you see in the world, right? So that's why being grateful and having a good attitude, you're going to see grateful and good things out there. If you want to, you know, be a, a burger meister, meister burger, if you go back to that, that uh, Christmas show, you're, you're going to not see anything except what you want to see. Uh, that usually is a very shallow look, but you have roll. It's rolling. Love that. It's a good metaphor for your company. Uh, what were some of the things that you were you're able to scale that? Was it? I mean, your your corporate obviously background. You saw how to scale things, but you know it's a newer world, different ways to market uh, than in the past. So so how did that flow? Okay, I, I think it's very important to take business growth one bite at a time. So the key, I think, to our success was that I planted the flag in Western, in the Western part of the US, in California, huge market, but realized that initially I only had so much time and so many resources, and I had to deploy them as intelligently as I possibly could. And let's develop our backyard first. So instead of jumping across the country and trying to be all things to all people, I think any startup should look at their local market first and build credibility in your local market before you try to take on other markets. So in our case, we, we just simply said in the first two or three years of our startup, we're gonna focus on the 13 Western states. We're gonna focus on our time zone and it wasn't really until three or four years later that my son, Mark, your friend, yep. who had joined Marriott Corporation, uh, came to me and said, hey, Dad, I think I'd like to get My story is, I, he said, I'd like to get on the train before the pulls out of the station. And I said, hey, we've got an opportunity for you. Come on into California, into our business, go through some training. And then because you've got the short straw in the family, you're going to the East Coast. <laughs> I don't like that. I, I think it's the big straw. That's where I am. Okay. Well, it turns out that he had the big straw because obviously as the company grew and as we developed a, a national footprint, 
our offices in New Jersey and the East Coast uh, introduced us to some major players in our industry. I have a business with KWC that starts in 1983. By 1996, we've had 15, 16 years of success. We have a brand that's established. We've put all of the emphasis behind building the KWC brand. And the CEO of the company calls me in October of 96 and says, we're not going to renew your contract. We've decided that you've done such a great job of bringing our product to market that, that we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to take over the distribution. So I have, I, I think I was in Boston at the time and my wife called and said, I had received this fax basically terminating our contract and ending our business because at this point I've got a 13, $14 million business, 80, 90% of it is KWC. And uh, through a friend of Mark, who is an attorney, I had uh, scenarioed in the summer of 96, what I would do if, if I were to lose this contract. And now I'm facing the loss of the contract, but happily, instinctively, I had done some homework. And so I called from Boston, Mark in New Jersey and said, set up an appointment with the, our attorney friend. So by three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, I'm in the Newark offices of an attorney and we're talking about how we're going to take this Swiss company to court. And there is a franchise law that particularly is very strong in New Jersey. We have the same one in California, but the New Jersey law was even tougher when it came to distribution agreements. And uh, we had a tax base in New Jersey giving us the uh, ability to bring a, a and uh, I was able to extricate myself from that relationship. Uh, in January of 97, we shipped all of the inventory to KWC's new headquarters in Atlanta. I had an out-of-court settlement for enough million dollars that I literally had the opportunity to think about retirement. But after about a 10-minute discussion with family, we restarted. We started the business, I think, with a $2 million platform in 97. And uh, that began the next chapter in the development of the House of Roll and the Roll brand as opposed to the KWC brand. And, and by early 97, we had, I think, gone to a trade show in Germany again, and we were starting to develop relationships with other manufacturers in Europe. And as, the, as we finished the 90s, <clears throat> our little $2 million restart, which I had had to downsize. And, and again, this is one of the, the, uh, the tough parts of any entrepreneur's adventure is that, that we're going to have some major shifts in, in our success. There'll be things like the pandemic that will suddenly change the landscape and, and have dramatic effect on, on revenues and and profits. How do you adapt to it? Well, you diversify, you get the creative. Uh, 
What did you look at your strengths? Our strengths were distribution relationships, uh, customer relationships, supplier relationships, reputation. And so by the early uh, 2000s, we have restarted the company under the name Roll LLC, which eventually becomes the house of Roll. We develop a relationship with an Italian company that manufactures bathroom product and also kitchen product. We just establish a relationship with a company out of London, England, that uh, manufactures an English style faucet. We establish a relationship with a uh, sink manufacturer in, in France called Alia. They, uh, they introduce us to fire clay kitchen sinks. Anyway, we, we start building product diversity instead of product dependency. So instead of a one show act or one product act, we're a multiple product act, trading on our reputation, trading on our distribution relationships, trading on our knowledge of manufacturing. And uh, thus begins a march towards a $75, $80 million company by uh, 2016. And uh, I think, John, the other thing that's important in any of our career successes is two things. And, and it, and it kind of goes back to your initial question as the, in this part of our interview, was what are the other things, what are the tangential things that influence your success? Trade show activity, very important. But more important is association, industry association activity. I built a persona in the kitchen and bath industry, which obviously eventually led to my Hall of Fame designation. But more importantly, I got to know my competitors. I got to know, know other product manufacturers, other distribution type businesses. I, 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 exp I, I did what I called building the pie rather than trying to steal a bigger share of an existing size pie. My philosophy was expand the pie for the industry built through innovation and new product introductions and, and new cultural approaches, the, the size of your industry. So I, I take some pride in the fact that maybe I was partially responsible for the growth of the, uh, the kitchen and bath industry and the luxury segment of an industry that going back to 1983 didn't exist. No, you were. So you should be proud of that. I'm proud of your whole family because like the way you're, you, you know, everyone structured it where everyone could have their purpose, their meaning, their ability to shine, you know, their role. No, again, no pun intended is such a wonderful thing. Uh, and look what it's created. Uh, besides a great family, it's created a great industry and a great product that's going to keep continuing to grow. And uh, I love it. Uh, you know, the, the, the book, Corporate Tenor, what a cool name. Uh, it, you know, everyone should read this book. Uh, all these lessons that we discussed today just show you, you know, you never know. You just got to be open enough and have relations and, you know, re you know, good relationships to be able to ask questions. And when you're down, 
you, you have someone to talk to to keep you moving forward. And you, you've had that because uh, you've allowed that to be in your life. So, well, John, you know. I, I want to inject here, too, that uh, Greg Roll is the reason why we're together today. Because it was Greg two and a half years ago who introduced me to this his startup, which eventually morphed into a a partnership with his brother Lou in a consulting and mentoring and teaching business, but he calls his company the role model. And I thought when he introduced me to the role model, what a cool idea and what generated the idea of, of naming your company the role model and thus began the beginning of this, this book experience because he, he said, well, I just looked at our 25, 30 years of exposure to you and all the lessons we learned along the way. And all I'm doing is taking those lessons and turning it into a new consulting business. And I said, well, hey, why don't I chronicle the path towards this uh, decision of yours? And so I then sat down and wrote 64 pages of handwritten history, which much of much of which we've gone over over the last hour or so. And well, it's nice. You'll have this for your family for generations to come and a uh, lot of great lessons. And, you know, so where can people find the book? Well, the book is available uh, through uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and Kindle. Uh, we just recently uh, commissioned a uh, audible, audible, what do you call it? Audible? Audible. Yeah, audible. Uh, so we have a, a male, female that read the book. And uh, I think that's probably going to be a very popular way for people to access the story. Yeah, I love audible. I listen to books more than read. So I, lo I love that medium. It's, it's a terrific way to learn. Well, I, I, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I just so enjoy these amazing stories. Is there anything you'd like to end with? Well, I, I just think the, the key, again, uh, to any of our success is continue to teach what you need to learn. And so <laughs> all, all entrepreneurs, all corporatepreneurs uh, should try to diversify uh, and, and share there are lessons learned. And one of the things that I've enjoyed most in these last seven, eight years of retirement has been sharing what I've, what I've learned along the way, what is in the, the, the book. Uh, but more importantly, I, I think our game is really never finished. And, and what a terrific reward it is to be able to share your experiences and your lessons with others and whether it's uh, our local theater where I've been chairman of the board of the Barclay Theater and helped to uh, overcome some challenges during the the pandemic uh, that the theater arts world was was oh yeah it was, tar it was tough yeah and my experience with UCI the University of California Irvine the Graduate School of Business being a trustee I mean, there's just so many ways that, that we can continue to be uh, productive and, and useful. And helpful. That's why we're here. I always feel best when I'm helping someone. So it's a good thing. 
Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Again, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, going to be on Audible soon. The Corporate Tenor. Uh, please uh, go out and, and get a copy. It's uh, great to give a gift out, right, for people within your company or just, you know, anyone who wants to uh, learn how to how be an entrepreneur. Yeah. So thank you. Hi, John Schultz here. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Would really appreciate it if you would like, comment, subscribe, and share with your friends. Looking forward to being with you soon.